Vehicle affordability is at an all-time low. One company thinks it has the solution. It's called LHPH Capital, and it stands for Lease Here, Pay Here. If you haven't heard of the term before, you're in for a fun episode. I sat down with the CEO of LHPH Capital, Tim Lawrence, and we discussed the rise of Lease Here, Pay Here programs, innovating consumer payment affordability, economics of a used car lease, subprime consumer health check, and much more. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. But before we dive into the show, this episode is brought to you by CDK Global. CDK Global has been empowering nearly 15,000 dealers with the tools and technology they need to build deeper relationships with customers. Their team is keenly aware of the state of dealership technology. And while many vendors promise seamless experiences between your CRM, DMS, digital retail, and fixed ops, most of these bolt-on solutions tend to break workflows and cause more harm than good. That is why CDK has launched a new dealership experience platform. This new integrated software consists of everything you need to operate a dealership efficiently while delivering an unparalleled experience to your customers. Basically, everything working together, not separate, one system to run your dealership as opposed to 10. CDK developed it with an outside-in approach, listening to dealers every step of the way. You can learn more about CDK's dealership experience platform by visiting cdkglobal.com DXP or clicking the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by AutoFi. AutoFi helps progressive dealers like you sell smarter, not harder on your dealership website and now in your showroom too. AutoFi solves the everyday problems dealers actually face like bottlenecks at the sales desk, customer distrust, and decision overload. And their all-new showroom solution includes deal estimation, desking, lender routing, and an F&I menu. All of this in one powerful platform that bridges the gap between the CRM and the DMS. Dealerships with AutoFi can manage the floor more efficiently, fast-track the yes, and make better lender decisions, enabling them to sell cars faster with higher satisfaction and more profit. In fact, deals with AutoFi take an average of 28 minutes from customer check-in to loan approval, and dealers are making $411 more back-end PVR per deal. Go to autofy.com slash CDG to learn more. That's autofy.com slash CDG and start selling smarter today. So Tim, tell me, going from marriage counseling to a career in sales, how did this happen? Well, my father-in-law thought I was crazy to do it, but it was really out of necessity. I was newly married, maybe a year and a half in, starting to build a private practice in marriage and family therapy. And we just couldn't really afford our monthly nut. And so one of my good friends had just gotten into medical device sales and he was in the operating room helping the surgeons. It was really fascinating to me. And I, he was making good money. And I just thought, well, at least for now, that could be something to help get us through it. I just tabled the marriage and family therapy. And so I got hired by a company called Biomet, a large um, organization, and was immediately captivated by it. Just loved it. Loved the sales side, the education side. And then continued to work my way up to manager, area manager, area vice president, and so on. It was great. The rest is history. But walk me through, you know, today you're running, you're the CEO of a large leasing company and focus on used car space. Like, couldn't be more of a stark difference from marriage counseling. So I'm just curious, and, and I understand the driver there. What was it like, what led you initially to go into marriage counseling? Like, why? What was that, you know, innate desire? Why did you want to do that? Yeah. So originally, I wanted to be a pastor. So I went into college thinking, I'm going to be a pastor. And about two years in, I realized that, well, it's really the one-on-one relationships that 
are the most meaningful. If I can help somebody through a difficult time, then I think I'm, I'm adding value to their life. And so halfway in, I had already had a, a major in theology, but so I minored in psychology. And then after that, did postgraduate in psychology. So now instead of counseling marriages, you're counseling people on leasing cars. Let's go, baby. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I can't tell you how valuable it's been to me in every part of my business life. Like how so? Tell me. I'm curious. So first, I think managing your team, you get all these different personalities and conflicts that come up between personalities and really trying to help coach people through it. Not so that I'm the one who's solving the problem for them, but to really help them be empowered to improve their relationship with their peer. So I think that's a, that's a big part. I think also maintaining my cool in certain situations has been really valuable because early on when I was doing MFT stuff, uh, it got pretty heated with couples and families. And I, I had to learn early on how to just stay cool. You'll figure out a way through this and you'll be able to help them. And so building that confidence, I think was really helpful as well. Yeah, we used to, I remember coming up in the dealership world, we used to have this saying in the dealership called like T-Mobile voice. <laughs> and, and, you know, if someone, when, when you're in retail, I mean, naturally in retail, you have crazy things that happen. Right. And um, I remember, by the way, I remember the first time I discovered one of our managers was like, you know, carrying, like was strapped, like had a gun on him. And it was really bizarre. I was like, wait, what? And, and I was much younger, mind you. But I just remember that, like, I was like, interesting. I was like, so this is the type of world we're in. And, and you know, this wasn't in like a terrible area or anything, but maybe from where he came from previously. Uh, needless to say, yeah, T-Mobile voice, you know, keep it, keep it I like calm, keep it cool. Voice. That's what, that's what we said. So, and well, you know, one other thing I'll, I'll mention is, I, I don't remember where I read this, but someone posted a really interesting article about like, you know, there could only be one angry person or in, in the room or I'm, I'm using the wrong term, but basically what this, what this, you know, this piece was talking about was that, you know, if you, if you show the customer that you are just as upset, if not more upset than them about something that happened to them, they suddenly like tone down, right? So if like you have someone coming in, like freaking out at you, something happened, who knows what it could be, nothing could be something big, but regardless, if you give them that feeling back that like you take it more seriously than them, suddenly they're kind of like, they take a step back. They're like, okay, whoa, like <laughs> this person gets it. I want to be heard and I'm being heard. Yeah, no, so, I think that's a really good point that just covers basically all grounds is people really want to feel heard and seen. And so if you can do that in your personal or professional life, it's it's so helpful. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, lessons from the dealership world. Can you just like give us a background on like, what is lease here, pay here, right? Like, what do you guys actually do? What's the business model? Yeah. So the lease here, pay here is essentially an in-house financing product, and it's targeted to a demographic of consumers that have little or poor credit. And that could be based off of any number of life experiences or just lack of building credit and who's not bankable. And so because this consumer has very little options, they'll likely go into a dealership and try to figure out a way to finance the vehicle. The dealership has no other options for them. So the dealer provides the financing 
themselves. And that's really where the term comes from, buy here, pay here, and lease here, pay here. It's you're buying the vehicle there, and then you're paying for it there, or you're leasing it there, and then you're paying for it there. And decades ago is really where it came from. And the consumer used to come in weekly with their cash payment and give it to the dealership. And then the dealership could take a look at the vehicle and make sure that it was still okay, that you were still breathing and that you would probably be back next week. Yeah, I mean, I up until very recently, I, I saw you know dealers advertising weekly payments, you know, just to kind of show a low monthly payment. I, I wanna set two really important distinctions for a second and please push back if I'm incorrect here. So the way consumers can, this is a used car lease that consumers can do through a dealership, right? That is the spoke. If I want to leverage your program as a consumer, I go to a dealership and that's where I can do a used car lease, right? right. Exactly. Great. All right. And then the second thing is buy here, pay here. Like how is this different from buy here, pay here? And for anyone that's listening that's not familiar with the term, and I'm going to assume it's not most people, but buy here, pay here, meaning you go to buy a used car or a car from a dealer and they are the lender essentially. For one reason, wrong, one reason or another, the dealer is the lender that is actually financing that loan for you. And you pay your monthly payment to the dealer. So how are you different from just a traditional buy here, pay here on the lender so side? So it essentially is the same thing, but we're the intermediary. So we lend money to the dealership so that they can have a lease here, pay here program. And the leases that they end up putting out have been financed by us. And that's also our collateral. So most of these dealerships, they don't have the financing themselves to be able to have 500 lease contracts out on the street or a thousand because it costs them the basically the cost of the vehicle each time they're putting a lease contract out. And that's really cash intensive. So that might cost them $5 million or $10 million. So instead, they would borrow a portion of that from us combined with their own money. And then that allows them to be the lender. Okay, so got it. So me as a dealer, you come to me, you put up the money. Do you do the underwriting? I approve your underwriting. And then that's the box that you're going to continue to underwrite on. And that really helps streamline it. So then that gives you the autonomy as a dealership to do the underwriting then and there. And you don't have to make any phone calls to me. There's nothing that I'm going to approve at the time that the consumer is with you. So you can desk a deal a lot faster as long as you know your own criteria and it lands within that box, then it's solely up to you to make that decision based off of that criteria. All right, so I know my audience. There's two main main questions in people's minds right now. One of them is consumer-focused, one of them is dealer-focused. All right, let's start with the consumer-focused one. Is this detrimental to the consumer, right? Like, is it, does this put the consumer in, in a worse position than they would otherwise be with a loan? Like what's the, what's the cost benefit here? I think it's totally the opposite. And the, the reasons are, if you're the consumer, then by leasing the vehicle, you're likely going to have a shorter term, which is going to promote successful transaction. The longer the term, the more likelihood that you're going to have some sort of mechanical failure that you're responsible for. And then that's going to put you in a tougher situation to be able to get back on track to both cover the expenses of the mechanical failure and to maintain your payments. So 
as a consumer, you're essentially test driving the vehicle over the period of the lease, whether that's 24, 36, or 42 or 48 months. And then you get to really know that vehicle. Is this something I want or can I upgrade once this transaction's over? And by having that option, it really does help you in both those fronts. Got it. So when I'm finished with that vehicle, I send it back to the dealer. Then does the dealer have the option then to buy it back or how does that, or not buy it back, I guess, just keep it. How does that work? Yeah. So from the dealer's perspective, it's your vehicle. You're the owner of it and you've been really renting it out over the course of the contract. And so then you can reassess it. Is it in good enough condition for me to recycle it and put it back out on the lot and do either a 24 month lease or an even shorter lease? Or should I wholesale it, have, you know, a- ACV come by and pick it up or ship it out to auction? So the second question that I had in mind that I think, you know, is going through people's head and it's definitely going through mine is how do you make money? And then how do the dealers make money here? Like, exp- give us like the, give us the nitty gritty of like the economics of how this works. Yeah. I see no, you smiling. I, I, I totally get it. <laughs> so, it's my favorite part, economics. I love that. <laughs> so we, we make money off of interest and fees because we're the intermediary. We're essentially the bank, but because this is a higher risk segment, we're borrowing a portion of our money from a syndication of banks and other financial partners to be able to lend it to the dealer. So because we're here, we're able to create really a new niche for dealers who typically wouldn't be able to get financing for a lease here, pay here program or a buy here, pay here program, then we offer the financing to the dealer. And it's going to have a little bit more of a margin in it than if you were borrowing directly from, let's say, Wells Fargo. And that's because that's that's how we're able to stay in business and create that longer term continuity for you as the dealer. And then when you're the dealer, so the way that our program works is you're essentially borrowing on the cost of the vehicle. Let's say the cost is $10,000 and you put a a thousand in reconditioning. So that's $11,000. And we set up a principal and interest amortizing loan with you on that cost down to zero over the same term as the lease. So let's say it's 42 months. We're going to amortize 11,000 down to zero over that 42 months. And you put out a 42 month lease with your consumer, your payment to us, let's say it's $250 a month and you're collecting $450 from your consumer because you put in a warranty and you're going to make sure that that vehicle runs. So as you collect that 450, you then pay us that 250 and you have that cash cushion spread of operating cash for you. While you're paying down the vehicle with us, it creates an asset for you that you can then either sell or recycle later. I got so I I basically I, I get a dividend, but I'm not I'm not getting that like upfront windfall of like, you know, a three grand deal or whatever it may be. I'm just not getting got it. Interesting. So I'd have to imagine how many dealers do you work with? I mean, are you nationwide? We are. We're in 17 states right now. Happy to enter new states as well. So you're looking to expand. What are you seeing right now? This is I'm just I'm curious about, you know, what you're able to see in terms of performance. Like, what are you seeing from a consumer perspective right now? Are you seeing an uptick in, you know, vehicles being 
repossessed or like what 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 are these like trends that you're seeing right there happening? Yeah, seeing very slight increase in repossessions, but here's what's on my mind is we haven't really seen delinquency get worse all that much and in our portfolio with our dealers, but I'm anticipating that that it will this quarter and before tax season. So I'm really curious if it's going to continue to deteriorate as a lot of the other subprime data is showing. I think we expect delinquencies to get worse, but we haven't seen it yet. We're just basically at pre-pandemic levels and what's how's this going to play out? I can't imagine that it wouldn't get worse based off of inflation and consumer savings decreasing. There's just less cash available to be able to support all of these auto payments. When you say you haven't seen it get worse, do you mean you haven't seen it get worse than 2019 levels? Or do you mean it hasn't been getting worse than 2021 levels? Over the last 12 months, it hasn't gotten worse. And it seems like we're at about where we were in 2019. How do you think about like EVs, you know, putting numbers on right now? I mean, especially EVs this year have seen, you know, massive volatility. How can you, how are you working through that? How are you navigating that landscape? It seems like many dealers I'm speaking with are really struggling with just forecasting given the volatility. And frankly, I mean, it's to be expected. We're still at like the early point of the adoption cycle for electric vehicles. So it doesn't surprise me that we're kind of, you know, hitting some bumps in the road and some volatility. Needless to say, though, I mean, people have to respond to that. Like, how are you handling that? We're fortunate enough to where we, we there's really not that much EV penetration in this market segment, but I think no doubt it's it's going to eventually reach this remarketing segment. I mean, the the target ACV for dealers in this type of program are usually in between eight thousand and fourteen thousand from auction. That would make a, a retail price probably in the 16,000 to 20,000. And so there's not a lot of EVs that would reach that at this point because they've been so expensive in the past and there's just not that long of a life cycle yet for these EVs to reach there. Got it. So, and and that makes sense. I mean, subprime, it's definitely not, (laughs) I don't know the exact percentage, but definitely not much penetration of EVs in subprime market. The interesting thing with EVs is that it sure seems like they're going to be economical at some point just because of the way that S-curves work and really what Tesla's done to the EV market and if they're going to end up being successful with their $25,000 economical model, if EVs really can last that 500,000 to a million miles, then it sure is going to make a lot of sense to have a lot of EVs in in subprime, especially if you're a dealer who has a lease here, pay here program, you want vehicles that are going to last longer because it becomes an asset for you longer that you're then, as you said, getting a dividend or an annuity payment from. How have you been able to like break into the market? You know, given I always think about like our industry has such tight margins, right? And like it's a it's a pretty big proposition to ask a dealer, hey, don't make, you know, whatever three grand up front today, rather wait make more, but it's going to be over three years. How do you like cross that? How do you cross that chasm? What do you do? Yeah. So 
I think there's two parts to this. The first is through education. When I first started, not that many people knew what lease here, pay here was or subprime leasing, however you want to characterize it. And we made a big focus from the beginning on education. So if you look at our website, we have tons of information. We, we do annual conferences. We try to get in with speakers at conferences so that we can help educate people on the benefits and really what it is. So that was the first part is just creating that awareness of what this in-house financing product is. The second part is that it's really been other dealers that successes, their successes have been able to illustrate that for us because it's great if you can get 2,000, 3,000 a copy on the short term, but if that same vehicle can earn you 10,000 or 15,000 over the life of its cycle, then that can that can make you quite a bit of money if your portfolio is 500 leases, 1,000 leases, 3,000 leases. Now, all of a sudden, as a dealership, you're both dealer and lender. And so it's, it's really just adding in a new segment to your business. As long as you do it well and look at it as an actual lender, then you could have pretty good success. I got to ask, like, are, did you guys, did you guys pioneer this model? I mean, who else, who else is doing this exact model in the market? So we didn't. Dealerships have been doing leasing. It's just been a very small, small margin of dealers. But maybe for the last 20 years, there have been dealers doing lease here, pay here, maybe 30 years. But what we did was we helped commercialize it more so that it's more accessible to dealers that otherwise wouldn't have this, uh, the ability to get capital like this. So Some of the larger dealers previously worked with like Wells Fargo to get their financing or a large regional bank. But for the normal dealer, it wasn't accessible. Mm -hmm. What are the actual economics for the dealer when it's all said and done? Like what's the IRR on a loan over three years, you know, when it's all said and done? Like what are you seeing? What is the average? We we typically see a dealer making eight to 10,000 on each vehicle over the span of the vehicle's life. So that's, that's about five years, I think, give or take. I'm curious how it, how it stacks up as just an investment in a portfolio period. I mean, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna vary by dealer because there, there are so many variables to this depending on the ACV of the vehicle. So if the ACV of the vehicle is a higher ACV, and the dealership has the infrastructure to have a really good service center and they're adding on a warranty and maybe let's say that they're through the warranty they have their own captive reinsurance company then the internal rate of return is going to be much higher for that dealer because they're they're able to keep that vehicle out on the street longer they have the service ability to maintain that annuity and then they're also on the back end getting the reinsurance money that has its own tax benefits. Yeah, so you mentioned service. How does how does all this play into to this model? Right, like for consumers, for dealers, like who's accountable for service here? So if you're the consumer and it's not in your lease contract, then it's just like as if you bought the vehicle and you're responsible for it. A lot of our dealers add in a warranty into the lease contract. And the unique thing about a lease is that you, if it's, part of your program from a dealership standpoint, you can just put 
the warranty as part of the rent charge, because as long as you do it consistently across the board, and it's not one of the ancillary products, that's an add-in. So it's different if you offer it after the fact, then it's an ancillary product. If it's part of your program and it's on every vehicle and every lease contract, then then the warranty's there. And what that does if you have your own service center is it it really does increase the likelihood of it going to term and it increases the likelihood of you being able to recycle those vehicles again and again. Given that, how do you think about like your business and you know, I don't know how closely you've been following just but like that, you know, there I want to say that there's n- no new cars that were sold in the last quarter transacted below 20k, right? Like the affordability is like a serious crisis. Anyway, so when you think about this, right? Like I have to imagine this presents an opportunity for you. Right? But like do you do you think that, you know, are we just headed to a point where there's that saying all over Twitter, you won't own anything, you'll be happy or however that goes like is is that the world we're in, like because affordability is just so out of touch? How do you just balance that with the fact that, you know, new cars? I mean, you can't even get anything under twenty k anymore, realistically. Yeah, I think there has to be a tipping point at some level, and I think organizations like Tesla are going to have a big advantage to that because the more efficient that the OEMs are, like Tesla, they can produce vehicles that cost a lot less which is going to meet that market demand that has really been abandoned or put on the shelf as of right now. And the impact of that is is making things harder on the used car market because it keeps the keeps the level of the prices a little bit elevated because there's less newer cars and same for affordability. It's like Back in during the financial crisis in 2009 was the least amount of new cars that were manufactured. And what that did by 2017 and 2018 is it made it so much harder for dealerships like the ones that we finance to acquire inventory that was actually valuable because those were the there was the most scarcity during those years. And so it meant that those vehicles that they were targeting were overpriced for the actual value that they were providing to the consumers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next five to 10 years based off of what's happened through COVID and manufacturing. But back to OEMs and these lower cost markets, I think that this is like a Tony Siba thing. I don't know if you follow him or not. No. So Tony Siva is a futurist. He's he's all about technology and electric vehicles and autonomous electric vehicles. And so we brought him into our office as a consultant to get his his thoughts as we're trying to game plan our next five to 10 years. And what he said was that based off of how economic S-curves work is electric vehicles are no doubt going to be a huge disruptor to ICE vehicles purely based on economics, because if those vehicles do actually last 500,000 and 1 million miles, and they cost less because there's only 200 working parts in an, in an EV motor versus 2,000 to a Wait, ice Wait, 1 vehicle. million miles? 1 million 1 miles. 1 million. Is this the, the theory out there? This is the, this is the theory wow. out there. I think Tesla is probably the only manufacturer that could produce a vehicle like that at this point. But 
if let's say Tesla does produce their economic $25,000 vehicle that can make it 500,000 to a million miles, that's going to be a game changer on this market segment. Yeah. I mean, when I think a million miles, we we used to call it the rollover at, you know, the auctions. I mean, used to see like, like a work van and this was like a, it was very rare where you'd see it again, the millions, you know, pushing it, but you'd see like 500,000, 600,000 on some like crazy work van I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty aggressive. So did he say anything else? He did, but I'm going to hold that close to the vest because we, we paid him as a consultant to come down. Oh. It was, it was very valuable. I think if you haven't read any of his works or seen his talks, check him out. He, he's got millions of followers. He's great. Yeah. Now, the only thing I'm reading nowadays is Dr. Seuss to my daughter at 7 p.m. every night. So, <laughs> And do you no. have it memorized yet? Uh, not quite. Not quite. No, I'll be honest. I did I did just buy a Kindle, though. I'm trying to, because, you know, at night, trying to embed with that little, like, backlight, which is pretty nice. So trying to get back into that groove. But definitely on the children's books grind nowadays. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I, I love it. Hey, so I did want to ask you about interest rates. You know, you obviously work with the capital markets to some extent, and you're raising money to lend it. How is that like impacting your business and how is it impacting consumers? Is it just as simple as they're paying a higher payment or are you seeing anything else when it comes to conversions and actual adoption of this product at dealerships? Yeah, actually, it's made it a lot harder in general because we on the borrowing side, we all borrow at variable rates and those variable rates are, are a lot higher based off of the Fed increasing rates. And because they shot up so quickly, it really put a heavy burden on organizations like us, but really at the dealership level, because they were watching their cost of capital double and it really compressed their margins. And in this demographic for the consumer, there's only a certain payment that is tolerable before you're just setting somebody up to fail. So the dealers really had to combat the supply chain issues, the inflation issues on vehicles and parts, the labor costs that they've been incurring that are higher along with interest rates. So they've had to get really creative on how to reduce expenses on their end so that they can af- afford to keep their program going while also keeping an affordable payment for the consumer. And I think that's one of the other reasons why leasing has gained in popularity for this specific demographic of consumer is because it makes it more affordable, the, the payment for the quality of vehicle that you can get with a shorter term. Yeah, so you're pretty much saying as these rates have risen, they pretty much the cars dealers have had on the road, their payments on those vehicles has risen as well. It, it right? had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I, you know, I can imagine though that now is probably a better time to enter the space as a dealer, given the fact that you know, we're unlikely to see rates rise as much as they've risen in the last two years. Again, not saying it can't happen, anything can happen, but it's less likely. Yeah, I think you're right. Because if you based your business model off of what rates were in 2017 and weren't able to accommodate that, that swift increase, but today you're building your model around what the cost of capital is and what you believe your consumer can tolerate as a payment that's, you know, bearable to the market, then it's going to be more successful. 
Do you think that like used car leasing in general, you think this is ever going to go mainstream? Like, do you think we're going to see it with, you know, prime customers and not just in like, the subprime segment? Or do you think it's really like a payment thing for low income consumers? Or what's your thoughts there? I think that it's easy for the subprime, deep subprime segment, because vehicles typically have already depreciated quite a bit. And so it's not having that drastic depreciation over the life of the vehicle to where you may not be able to predict the residual value, because that's sort of the concern for dealers or lenders and used car leasing is how close am I going to be at the targeted residual value in three years? And so if you're if you're able to do that with this market segment that has used cars that are a little bit older, it's easier. However, I think based off of data and generative AI, that it's going to increase the likelihood of used car leasing throughout the credit spectrum instead of it just being super prime and just being subprime and deep subprime, it's going to help fill in the gaps because there's going to be better predictive models. And if you can do that based off of those predictive models, then there's a huge market opportunity. A lot of people want to lease cars. They just can't. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's never really been like a hot thing in used car industry to begin with for one reason or another. It's, um, you know, I've heard of leasing programs for years and I definitely know the $100 a week buy here, pay here you're talking about. But it's interesting to see that, you know, it makes me wonder, is this an area that, you know, it's going to get increased adoption given where affordability is at, interest rates, and just, you know, the prices of cars. I'm with you. Tim, if anyone wants to learn more about yourself, LHPH, like where can they go to learn more? So our website is easy. It's LHPH.com. You can look through all of our information there. You can reach out to us or you can email me tlawrence at lhph.com is fine and i'll get you to the right person on our team for whatever you're looking for appreciate that any any last words for the audience before we wrap up hang in there through this tumultuous time in the market or this turbulent time i think there's a lot of opportunity to be had and in any crisis there is opportunity so let's go find it together look at that very inspiring (laughs) all right my friend Tim Lawrence, thanks for coming on to the pod. Really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing all your insight. Super interesting. Thanks for having me. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.